Passing Dimes is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. Probably should have called him earlier in the process, but, you know, we're never too late, and I'm really excited he could make time for us today. So today's guest is a two-time OUA champion, a first-team All-Canadian, OUA Player of the Year, and two-time first-team All-Star with McMaster. He went on to play for our national team and professionally in Qatar. He was the head coach of Niagara College, where he was an OCAA champion and CCAA bronze. He's worked with Team Ontario and Volleyball Canada as a coach, and he's currently the head coach of the York Lions. Please welcome to the show, Nathan Gruenveld. Nate, thanks for doing this, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Man, like I said, I probably should have got you on the show earlier because you and I have talked and I've probably stolen a lot of ideas, but but glad we can make time. But for the listeners who maybe not uh, know you as well as I do, I just want to start with your family background because four boys in a household, I imagine a lot of sports were being played anyways, but with four guys who went on to play volleyball at post-secondary, it must have been a, a pretty big volleyball household or at least like a lot of stuff going on in the backyard. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we came to, or sorry, I came to volleyball late. I started in the 10th grade. So as a lot of athletes who come to volleyball, I came pretty late after playing some other sports. And, and then as it trickled down, everyone else in my family, my, my brother started playing earlier and earlier and earlier. And, and I think, uh, I mean, I was fortunate. I grew up at a time where like we went outside, right? Like we, we went outside and played and we played games and had a neighborhood full of kids. And so sports have always been a big part of what we do. And then, we just, as a family, latched on to volleyball, and my parents were really supportive and, and drove, at times, three or four kids to different parts of Ontario to try and manage um, all of the OVA club schedules at the time. And so, yeah, it was it was a really cool experience growing up, for sure. Yeah, with you leading the way, was club volleyball new to your family, or did you come from a pretty competitive high school program that it was a natural step, or what was it like leaving other sports and going into like the OVA circuit? Yeah, so actually, um, I went, ironically, I, I switched from basketball over to volleyball because my knees hurt. I grew nine inches in six months at one point, <laughs> um, which is not like a highly recommended route to grow. Like slow and steady definitely is, is a better a better thing. So um, with the, the ligaments and all the stuff stretched, I was like, okay, I got to. I got to try something else and, and give it a whirl. So in grade 10, I tried both, uh, uh, was playing volleyball. And one of my teammates just, just happened to, to be a club volleyball player and was like, listen, um, the entire 16U age group has moved on because at the time, and, and you might remember this, it was like it was like 16U, 18U. There wasn't the, the in-between ages. So a whole group was leaving and they were really looking to to reset that, that age group. So I went out and... I mean, at the time, I'm 6'4", 6'5". I'm, I'm okay athletic, but re- had some, some room to grow. And so got a really cool opportunity to start. And 
had a phenomenal coach. Um, I always laugh because I've told Lucas Hodgson, who's now the, the head coach at Windsor for women, he was my first ever club coach. And he's his claim is he's my the worst club coach that I've had. And that's just or the worst volleyball coach, actually, that I've had. So <laughs> that just kind of shows you the lineage of coaches from him on. Um, and then it just spiraled from there where my brothers all decided to play. And then Dan, the youngest, I think is, was in a volleyball gym for forever. Like he, he would come when, when Jared and I were at Mac, he would pepper and like during timeouts and stuff, he would do all kinds of stuff. He was allowed free reign of that place for a long time. <laughs> That's amazing. And I, I love the shout out to Lucas there. So for me and the listeners benefit, who else did you have at club? Like before you went on to play for Dave Preston and obviously some national team stuff, but who would have been some of your club coaches along the line there? Yeah. So I'm really fortunate. So I had Lucas my first year and then my second year, uh, my head coach was Jay Magus, who is, was a former national team setter, uh, Saskatchewan, uh, all Canadian, played on the national team, uh, and then moved with his wife uh, to do her residency in Ontario to be a doctor. He's now in with with his daughter now is in the high performance pipeline in Saskatchewan, and, and I actually saw him two summers ago now at Canada Cup, and it was really cool. We had a, a coffee and a dinner and chatted. And, um, and and then I just I went on from there. I had him for two years, and then went on and played for for Dave Preston at Mac. I played for Glenn. I I played for Larry McKay, Benjos. Like it's it's just a, a laundry list of incredible coaches that I got the experience to play for after that. So with you, and I'll I'll say this lately, having a late start because I think in our era maybe it wasn't that late, but being a grade ten guy and then playing club. How soon did you know post-secondary was going to be a thing? Like, did you kind of convince yourself looking around at the level and how competitive you were? Or did coaches start giving you attention? Or when did you know that you could play this at the next level? Yeah, it, it was a really... I, so I played in grade 10. And then in grade 11, I went out for the provincial team and made it. Um, and, and at the time, I like I, I, it was an incredible group that we took. Like some all-star, Devin Miller was a setter on that team went on to play at Queens and professionally Paul Richet, who ended up at Dalhousie was on that team. Great Nainsworth who played professionally overseas after his career. Um, so there was a ton of, of awesome volleyball players on that group. Uh, and, and so I think at that point I realized that I could, there was a possibility of it. Um, being the first one through in my family, it was a completely new experience of starting to have these conversations with coaches um, I, I think at that time, and that's like 10, almost 15 years ago now, um, there was a, it was a little bit more of having those conversations in 18U and instead of, of what we're doing now. But um, yeah, I, I think at that point, making the provincial team like a year into it um, kind of gave me the confidence of like, okay, there's something here and, and let's go figure out what it is. Now, I want to choose my words carefully because comparing McMaster at that time to what Dave has accomplished in the last cycle, it, it wasn't Big Bad Mac at that time. Like, I feel like the timing was right for you to join. And obviously the program took off when you were there, but they, they weren't these world beaters. And I'm not sure Dave had won a championship at Mac yet until your cycle got there. So what attracted you there? Was it the opportunity to maybe play at a younger age or, or your studies were going to be a good fit? But uh, looking it up before the show, I think two years before they got there, they were maybe a six team or excuse me, six game wins in a season and then the next year they made playoffs and then obviously your cycle did very well but what attracted you to McMaster because I think people hear that name now and think that Dave's had a good thing going and has been a, a first place club forever but uh, you were kind of in the early stages there of what he's built yeah yeah for sure um, I know they they had a, a really really young group the year before 
I got there. So that's like the parish offers, the Sean Penchals, the Paul Hercules, that group had come in. There was about eight or nine of them that, that had come in at once. Um, they just missed the playoffs. Uh, and then we added a really like John Crowick, Peter Herkel and myself came in the next year and then just added a little bit more depth. Obviously having like Peter Herkel was all world from the moment he stepped on to McMaster court. Um, I, I think for me at the time, uh, and, and I've told this story several times, but for me, a lot of it was Dave. Uh, a lot of it was the vision that he had for the program. Uh, his background, having been a national team coach, having been at Western which is a word that we don't speak too often <laughs> in the McMaster gym. Uh, but uh, we, he had this vision for where he wanted the program to go. And more specifically, he had this incredibly detailed vision for me as an athlete. And I think for me coming, I, I talked to a couple of Canada West schools. I talked to some schools in Ontario and there was just something different about what he was outlining for me. It wasn't this like, smoke and mirrors or sunshine and lollipops it was like here's what it's going to be and here's the work that you're going to need to do but but here's how we're going to outline it and and that plan through the five years and beyond that i was there came to fruition um like to the point where it was like after third year you'll go to the national team trial but you'll get cut and i remember getting like i was like the 15th 16th guy in the fichu roster so like get you fill out all the paperwork but you don't go and i came back into his office and i was like well thanks for that plan we couldn't have like made this plan where I make it and he just he chuckled so I, I think it was that it was a lot of the, the guys who were there and that group that got to grow um, it, it was an interesting situation because there was already in the previous class there was three middle blockers ahead of me um, when I came in and I just saw an opportunity to get better I saw an opportunity where if I developed I could play and I'm, I was pretty fortunate I played basically right away um, in my first year and and then really didn't step off the court for four more after that. Now I may have skipped a step here. I'm trying to get my timeline correct with you and I being similar age. And then we had Hinchy on the show. Were you a part of that club team that was for lack of a better term, like pretty stacked and a bunch of university bound guys. Were you on that squad that kind of, I would say if not, everybody went on to play university. I'm trying to think who was in your era, maybe in your 18 new year. Yeah. So um, with, I didn't play 18U in my 18U era. I actually played 20U um, because there was a double cohort year. So when I flipped clubs, we went and I played a year of 20U. So that group was, uh, we played one of the years was with Devin Miller setting. And then after he went, because he's a year older, he went early. And then the returning group, Andrew Hinchy set, Sholin Trevetti and Paul Pizzacca, who went on to York, uh, we're on it. Luke Lichty, who went to Queens, John Crowell, who went to Mac with myself. Um, I'm trying to think I'm missing someone else, but every single guy on our roster ended up somewhere. Um, and five of seven guys on that team ended up on the all rookie team my first year. And I wasn't one of them. I think it was myself and John Crowell were the only two who didn't. But again, like the um, the Andrew Hinchy, Sholin Shreddy was on there. Paul Pisaka was on there. Um, I think Luke Lichty was as well when he was at Queen. So yeah, just, but at that time with the double cohort, like there was some incredibly stacked teams in that age division in Ontario and guys who had university experience. So all the eight guys who were at Mac were on a different version of that club team. Um, and they were all playing together with Dave coaching that group. 
Um, I know like University of Waterloo had a team under Waterloo Tigers at the time. And like, it was just, there was so much talent in like my, I'm, I'm a 1986 baby, the 86 is the 85 is that group that went on to play university and have some tremendous success. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks for correcting my timeline there. And I, I'm glad you mentioned Dave's periodization and his planning. Cause when we had him on the show, I was just blown away with how detailed he is. Like nothing is left to chance in his gym and everything's detailed. But what, what I want to know more about is you mentioned there's so many middles ahead of you as upperclassmen. What was the practice environment like? Cause one thing that, that I know about Dave is playing time is never a charity with that guy. Right. So you came in as a first year and played, but what did you feel like you had to do to earn that spot? And what were some battles going on in kind of the, the box gym there in McMaster where the guys kind of train most of the time? Yeah. So my first year, uh, when I, when I got there, there was a couple second year guys who had kind of started like the Duncan Gillespie's Emmer deep saying at that point, Paul Herkel was still in the middle. Um, and that group had kind of taken their lumps for a year. So they were way more experienced in it. Um, and it was just a battle. And it it's funny to look back at that group. And I'm still really close with most of the guys from, from that group. But just thinking about going forward, the battles that continued on. Like at one point, there was three of us. So Sean Bench was a junior national team kid when he was there. Ty Santoni ended up playing um, in the full-time training center and had professional opportunities that he turned down to go uh, back to, to go get his NBA at Mac. But I remember the three of us just every single day was just like, it, it wasn't, there wasn't an opportunity to go like, I got this. And it, it was just an incredible atmosphere to show up every single day to battle. Um, but the OEA at the time with the travel partners, there was always like a, a really good team on your weekend. And then respectfully a less than great team the second night. And so there were some opportunities where we could all play. And then as we kind of moved through the season, but um, we solidified who was, who was playing more often than not. But I think Dave did an incredible job of just like, it wasn't, it was a big deal because we were all getting better, but it wasn't a huge deal of like, we had confidence that whatever version of that group played was going to be incredible. Um, and then later on the position groups that were, were going on, like when my brother Jared got there, like he went, he was behind. And I use that term loosely, like Dan Smedley, who was like a multiple time OUA all-star at that point. And those two would just like at practice would go at each other. And we had Sean Penchel and Ryan Hudson at the same time. And I think that that ability of like you, we could start almost, anybody and we could do all kinds of incredible things and like you like i don't know teams to this day that have a, a second opposite or outside or third outside hitter who can come in and drop 30 and no one would flinch and be like yep yeah, he, he dropped 30 that's what he's supposed to do so i think that that environment in general just rose raised everybody's level um kept our gym extremely competitive um and then i think the mutual respect that we had for each other allowed us to push each other without it ever getting ridiculous. And with that going on in the practice gym, I'm wondering with the league schedule, who specifically did you fire up for? Like you mentioned that maybe Western wasn't the favorite team or put stock as years at York, they were competitive there or, or Queens was obviously very good. Was there anybody you kind of circled on the calendar and you just couldn't wait to play against this team? Uh, so my first year, uh, I believe like York and Western were in the final, like they were, incredible both of those teams um i think anytime you play at mac western is circled on the calendar and 
and is there and, and what that program represents. Because at that point, uh, I remember my first year, we played them in the semifinals and they lined up Alex Jerome, Chris Mockery, and Peter Sidler on the pins with Dan Miller and she sat like in the middle and she was setting like it, it was just like there were so many loaded teams at that time like Windsor wasn't as ideal so you'd go play Western and play Windsor so like York was phenomenal with that group Queens was great Western was great um, Queens from year we played Queens in the quarters my first year and then most years we would play them like one year I think we played them like 10 times between like multiple preseason tournaments that we were both at that we ended up playing each other. We played each other in league, played twice. Um, and then we played each other in like a best of three final and back-to-back years. And, and that went to distance. Like, so we, we played Queens all the time and, and there was definitely, uh, it, it was a ton of fun and, and a huge competitive environment. And, and there's some crossover in terms of like, I played club with Devin Miller, who was the center there for a long time. Parish offers from Kingston, originally and was on our team so that was definitely one so I think at that time Queens would probably be the the one that got circled a lot and was there a lot nice nice and I'm curious with Dave's high level of planning and his ability to really look ahead was there talks of a championship like did you walk into the practice gym and today on Tuesday we're going to battle because we're going to win an OUA championship like was it something that you talked about you put it on the board or was he more process driven or how did you guys like to think about winning because for you to walk away with two OUA championships I'm just curious like what the plan was or what the motivation or how you guys stayed connected to that goal yeah I I think it was always there but it was always we didn't really talk about it day to day. What we talked about was the standards that needed to be met. Um, and I think with Dave's background with the national team and what he was responsible for, um, had a really good grasp on like what we need to be doing and what, what, how well do we need to be passing? How well do we need to be siding out? How well do we need to be doing those kind of things um, for us to be competitive? Um, and then just really working through on being how good can we be? How competitive can we be? Um, and then it was just like, it was the ultimate version of, a, of the process. Like I remember my first year we got, um, we lost in the semifinal at Western against Western. And as a group came together and we're like, okay, we're, we're all here for one reason. We're all here to win a title at some point in this. And, and what do we need to change? What do we need to make better? Um, and then the second year we, we got past that. We beat a, an incredible Ryerson team that I, I still sometimes laugh about when we beat them in the semi at in Kerr Hall. They had like Ryan Vanderberg, so Snake was on the right side, Fugard and Nicholas Beaver in the middle, and Anton Hauser on the left with Oleg. Like you want to talk about a receiving nightmare in a gym that like I think Snake could almost spike touch the roof. And we're <laughs> like if we're just getting bombed on and I, I really did not have a ton of offensive reps in that match, but um, fortunately for us, served really well, and our pin hitters did an awesome job of, of controlling it. But um, I, I think, and then that took us into the final, and, and we lost in the final. Um, and then the other thing that really drove it, we hosted nationals my second year and my third year, which just propelled us and gave us this like, we got to go. We played the defending national champs like three or four years in a row, three years in a row. Um, so we just got to see what it looked like and what that process looked like of where we wanted to be. Um, and, and I think that that absolutely helped. 
And did that uh, cross over at all when you went to try out for the national team? Because then you were familiar with some of the best players around the country and you could say, oh, they're so-and-so, they're so-and-so. Like you could see where you lined up or what was it like walking into your first national team tryout? Yeah, it was a, a surreal experience because it was kind of as my game rounded out. Um, at that point, it was invitation only uh, as opposed to the open tryout. And I think there are merits to both systems. Um, I, I really do like that there's an open one and we're not going to miss too many volleyball players with a more open tryout system. And I had had a really good third year. Uh, we played Trinity Western in the quarterfinals at Nationals. And I think I scored like 25 points or something in the middle. Um, and so got invited to national team tryouts and walked in and we had played like we'd gone out to U of A for their Can-Am challenge when they had it. Um, we had played that group. That group had a ton of national team guys on it. Trinity had a bunch. So uh, I had been in it a little bit. Um, but I think for me, it was just the, the preparation going in. Dave and I sat down and I was like, I don't want to look back at whatever this trial ends with and go, I could have done an extra lift here or I shouldn't have skipped that or I could have gotten more of this. Um, and again, just utilizing Dave's superpower and the planning, the meticulous planning that went into that process and then getting there and just, you know, I, I think there's a ton of kids and, and as, as a, as a youngster, like my goal is to be a professional athlete. And I think a lot of kids say it. And I think, especially in Canada, it's like, are you going to be a professional hockey player? Maybe basketball now is definitely more of an option, but it was those kind of things. And all of a sudden now it was like, I'm close enough that one day someone might pay me a few dollars to spike a volleyball. And how cool would that be? Um, so I just remember walking in, I, I went to my first tryout. Glenn had just taken over. Um, and I'm in a gym with like, Murray Grappentine and Steve Brinkman and Paul Durden's there and Koski and Mike Monday, like the guys that I'd watched on TV and, and VHS tapes at the time and, and some of that stuff. So it was a really cool experience just being in that group and going, okay, I'm, I'm going to have a blast with this and enjoy every second of the trial. And with Dave's experience with the national team, like, did that give you a head start? You mentioned the workouts and the planning, but when you walk into that environment, are you aware of how you're being evaluated? Like, was Glenn a big plus minus guy then? Were you just trying to win every drill and, and just battle when you were there? Or how did you think about going through the days? Like, were you so focused on your performance? Or did you honestly start looking around and be like, I beat that guy. I won this drill. When I was on this person's court, I was better. Like, what is the process? Because it can be pretty grueling. And like you said, there's some big names there that uh, w we watched on TV and VHS that isn't the thing. I think people maybe watch on YouTube now. But uh, it must have been a pretty big thrill to be in the gym with them. But when you're battling, like, where did your mind go in those moments? Yeah, I, I was really fortunate. Dave and I sat before I left, and and one of the the parts when we planned it out was, okay, what what are the things that I'm going to be able to showcase in my game? Um, and I think especially for middle blockers, it's really really hard to be a really really great blocking middle, right? Like I think that that skill takes a ton of patience, it takes a ton of rep, takes a ton of experience, um, and the offensive side of the ball for some of us like came for me came pretty naturally. But I think I knew that that was going to be, if I could be a good enough blocker, um, I knew that I was one of the better offensive middles in, at that time, CIS. Um, so just trying to showcase that. And then really concentrating for a lot of our season on what else can I add? So how can I be a really good server? How can I be a great defender as a middle? Like, how can I add some of these other pieces so that if it is, hey, he's, he's really gifted offensively, 
we can grow into the blocking part of this and, and get him better. But he adds all of these other little values. And I think that was one thing that as soon as Glenn took over the program, there was this incredible vision of we, the game was becoming more of a global skill game and you couldn't just be good at one or two things, right? We had, you, you started seeing volleyball players who, who are more skilled and, and those kind of things. So I think that was the way to kind of separate. And then really, because it was, uh, I don't want to say an experiment, but it was really just like, I- I'm here to gather all this information and I'm going to leave with a couple things that I can go back and Dave and I can go, okay, how do we put this plan together of, okay, I, I need to be a better blocker. All right, let's go to work. And how do we do that? Amazing. Amazing. So you, you go through that trial process. You mentioned you, you're on the FISU list, but you're on, kind of on the long list. And then you go back to university. So during that university season, obviously you're focused on winning and performing at the OUA level, but in the back of your mind, is that national team tryout the thing that you're really looking ahead to and working for? Uh, a little bit. Uh, I think one of the, the big things at that point is that was coming off of um, not our ultimate goal. So after my third year, we hadn't won an OUA title yet uh, and had come painstakingly close. Um, and so for me, a lot of it was trying to drive, okay, how can I be better so that we can win an OUA title this year? And then from that, how do we then continue the progression that needed to happen um, for the national team stuff? So the, the biggest change in with that national team in mind was uh, some of the extra lift and some of the programming that was done for me. Uh, and Steve Lissom was incredible. He's now the high performance director at Brock, um, but did an incredible job of, of that planning and coordinating with, with Curry Schneider from the national team to where does he need to be and how do we get him there? Uh, and then Dave and I just utilized some of the individual practices in the morning and some extra stuff just to, to be more prepared for that. And there was a huge carryover for that. Um, and then that year we drove, we had the most competitive, complete team that, that I've been a part of and, and seen at the UA level from top to bottom and had, as I mentioned before, two great setters, two incredible opposites. We put everybody on the all-star team. Um, that was my player of the year year uh we could have easily could have been any of like three guys on our roster who could have been player of the year that year uh we went undefeated in league play all through the playoffs and then and then went to nationals again what's that got to feel like on game day or you're getting off the bus at somebody else's school and you're just like untouchable did it just feel like if you guys played your a plus game that you were unbeatable or were there some teams around the league that could really push you guys uh there there was still some some really talented teams but I think when you you train at the level, when you train against those competitors, when you would stack up your teammates, especially in your position, against anyone in the league, um, uh, there there's definitely a confidence. I think there's a security blanket to it a little bit of like we can go let it rip, and and if you know, okay, Jared's not having a great game on the right, we know that we have Peter and Parrish on the left who can score, and we have multiple middles who can score, and we can we can take care of that. We had some some great players and. And if you were having a tough day that someone else could pick up the slack or you could, you know, hey, maybe maybe today's not my day from the service line, but I can do some awesome things blocking and, and attacking. So it, it was definitely an experience, but I think we all knew going through that year that none of that stuff mattered if we didn't go through a playoff run that ended with a banner and a trophy and, and all the other stuff on the other end. 
Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, started an amazing golf brand called Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B-J-S-O-N.com to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. That That's awesome, man. I'm just looking at the clock and there's a ton of stuff to cover, but I, I do want to skip ahead to your national team era. And I'm curious, how much contact did you have with Glenn, with him being a former middle blocker? Did he really have an influence and, and really rely on you to kind of build around the defensive system and what he was doing there with, with the blocking that he wanted Team Canada to do? Or who were some of the coaches that you worked with that really helped your game at an international level? Yeah, again, I think having the base with Dave helped. Um, having Glenn come in at a time, and when I made the national team, um, it was in kind of a time where there was a transition period. It was a, a little bit of an outside from the Olympic from the Olympic Games, so it was a lot of like we're we're introducing this. We they they kept a, a huge roster in Winnipeg that summer at U of M, and and so just being able to work every day with Glenn um, with Chris Green. Um, and, and that group and just having those conversations and then just being around world-class players and seeing what that looked like and, and modeling it. And, and some of those have, were incredible for me. My first pro season, Fred Winters was in Qatar when I was there as well. He was there for a little stint that year. And, and so just that support and that all of those kind of things that help build the confidence in your game and looking going, hey, like you, you do this well, don't lose sight of that while still building up this and having those conversations like uh, again having like a Marie Grappentine at the tail end of his career uh Steve Brinkman and I are still really close friends and, and chat quite often like there's a lot of other pieces not just the coaching staff but an incredible coaching staff especially Glenn um being able to 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 show me the vision through a middle blocker and what he was looking for and he's also very hard in that position so it is a, a fun position to play for him though yeah yeah for sure and you mentioned brinkman who we had on the show who was amazing absolutely amazing to get it we'd love to get murray grappentine as well but i'm curious has it changed over the years of what you do as a coach now but do you remember back then as a middle with with the game just going a mile a minute there what your eye sequencing is or would you commit where you pure read like what were some little things that you learned as a middle to try to take away gaps and lanes because like I said, I think the international game is so fast. I'm curious, like, where was your attention? And you, you mentioned, like, uh, earlier on, you're, you're good friends with Benjo, and I think he does a really good job with his blockers and eye discipline and things. So I'm curious, over the years, what you gathered and maybe what was your approach back then when you were, you know, getting the international nod and trying to play these, these super fast offenses? Yeah, so I think the, the number one thing was just how prepared – that you can be at that level and how prepared you need to be at that level going in and, and understanding what they're going to do. And, and to a point, there's a little bit of, uh, I don't quite know how to word it, but like, you're not going to stop everything. Right. And just making sure that you're prioritizing what's important. 
uh, and being able to get some quicker reads and having conversations with other players of, of what are we picking up and, and how are we doing this and what does that setter want to do? And, and especially at the, the international level, that the, the player pool plays against each other all the time. They play professionally against each other. They play um, national team stuff together. They play all of these tournaments. You're seeing the same group, same philosophies a lot. Um, and so I think just that familiarity of how to, how to break down, how to understand that, um, was extremely helpful. And then diving into it as a coach, just understanding, you know, meeting your learner where they're at and, and how do you get them to look in the at the right area to pick up the information that they're going to need quick enough. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we've had, we've been lucky over the years to get a, a lot of good setters like TJ and Dustin Snyder and even some younger guys like Epp and just talking about like the cat and mouse games at some of these setters. And I, I I would be missed if I, I didn't say Brett Walsh as well, but it seems like setters really look off the middle blocker and that's going to be the key for decisions. So I, I'm curious with you being a high level middle, was there anything you could do as a part of that cat and mouse game to kind of mess with them? Or was it just being kind of like neutral and ready to go without giving them a tell? Like what could you do to counter some of these setters who just had great vision and a great plan that we're going to try to isolate and get some one-on-ones against you? Yeah. So I think some of it is, is just being aware of, any game that you're playing, what are you giving up to play that game, right? And I think sometimes there are setters where you can kind of throw your hands in some directions but not stay off balance. You can take a false step that they may be looking at when in their sequencing they're, they're going to do it. So I think there are setters who look really, really early and there's not a lot of information at that point. There's setters who can look phenomenally late. I think TJ is one of those setters where like his peripheral vision and his ability to to know what's going on without having to look is, is almost superhuman. Um, and one of the reasons he's really, really good at his job. And so I think just, again, an understanding of what they're going to want to do, how you can counteract that. And I think a lot of it is where do you have the help, right? So like when you're blocking with like Gavin Schmidt, who's 6'10 and a pretty good blocker, there, there's some chances that you can take and there's some things that you can do. Um, Whereas if you're blocking with the Dustin and I played against and with Dustin a lot and, and think the world of him, but he's not a six, five physical setter. Right. And so just understanding some of those things and, and how can you work within your system to not be giving away too many things while, while trying to, again, play a little bit of when do I commit? How strategic is that? When do they want, when do they like to run the big, do they like to run it to this outside versus that outside, all those kind of things. And then, a little bit of hope and prayer too. <laughs> nice, nice. And then just to skip ahead one step further, I- I'm learning by doing the show that pro contracts, everyone kind of has a unique experience. Like there's there's definitely a pathway there, but how you get there, there can be some small tweaks ar- uh, along the way there. So were you a guy who got an agent first or how did this contract go to get, uh, I think Qatar was, was your pro debut, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I went after my fourth year of university my seat like with the, the the national team i decided to go back to school for my fifth because i wanted to finish my degree at the time was around 2008 2009 and most of your listeners are pretty familiar with where the world went at that time and and contracts took a little bit of a dip coming out and so i went to to what was FTC is now um, the National Excellence Program, but at the time was still FTC. The first year that it moved to Gatineau, so um, I, I went to that. Was invited after my national team tryout, um, and so went there and had a, a phenomenal 
experience. We were able to go to Norseka in 2000. That would have been 2009. Um, and so right after the Olympics and the Americans, the Cubans, and the Puerto Ricans all brought their A-teams with a couple kind of um, changes, right? So Lloyd Ball and Ryan Millar didn't come for the U.S., but everybody else did. So Sam and Pretty, David Lee, Clayton Stanley, that whole group. Uh, the Cuban group was Leon, Leal, Simone, uh, Michael Sanchez on the right, like just a, an incredible group. And, and we got to play most of those teams. Hector Soto still was playing for Puerto Rico. And I think he played till he was like 90. But so got to do that. And then after that experience in November, came back and, and I was represented by um, Sim Graton at the time. And, and through Dave's relationship with Paul Graton, that came about. Um, and so joined that and uh, at one point Steve Welsh came to me and, and I remember him calling and being like do you know where Qatar is and I was like nope um, and so was offered a really really good financial deal um, and some other deals that were coming through weren't as great because being a Canadian middle blocker at the time and the transfer fee and not on our A team yet and and some of those factors was a little bit tricky to get contracts of value because there's some really good domestic middle blockers in the world. So ended up in Qatar um, for five months uh, for the season there. And um, yeah, that was the, the one and done. So Now, I, I might be completely wrong on this and please correct me if I am, but I'm curious from what I've heard. There's some leagues there in the Middle East that are really into like the showmanship of the sport and they want to see blocks and they want to see big bounces. Like, did you get that impression when you were there that there was like a little bit of a spectacle versus like maybe a league like Poland or Italy that are really into like technical, tactical volleyball that the Qatar really wanted to see some balls get hammered? Yeah, Qatar is a, a, a I call it the, the show pony league. Um, <laughs> it is absolutely that way. It was that way there. And, and you could see it, like I think Fred Winters was replaced on his club team despite being like the best outside hitter in the league at the time. Um, it, it's it's a league where like guys like Clayton Stanley and Loy Ball and uh, Leon Marshall from Cuba and those guys would finish wherever they were. They'd stop by Qatar, play a few club cup matches for like 40, 60,000 euros and then go home. Um, so it's definitely like I remember after my first game, I scored 26 points. I think I was like 70% efficiency and the club president came up and was like, okay game, but you'll be better next time. And I was like, <laughs> I don't think that I will be, but, and, and then quickly learned that if I just swung as hard as I could, I, I moved out to the left side at that point. And like, if I just swung as hard as I could over top of a, a local center, that that was a way better outcome for their happiness with me as a player for sure so were you in service eve yeah Yeah. awesome yeah (laughs) uh i did want to circle back to you you mentioned you're with the national team and you're playing against some other teams like a teams do you did you get a few rotations against like a david lee or simone like do you have any like head-to-head battles that you remember from that tournament so that tournament i actually played opposite nice Um, yeah, it was awesome. And every middle's dream is for a coach to come to them and say, like, you get to play something else. And you're like, yeah, this is awesome. So, yeah, that that tournament was an absolute – there are still some hilarious stories from it. Um, I, I think one of the first we, – so we played, like, Panama our first game, and it, it is what it is, and they're, they're not very good. Um, and then we played the Americans in 
pool play. And so I get subbed in on the double sub because Joel Schmulin was our primary opposite and was an all world at U of A and, and then went to Korea that year as well. But so we're in and I get up the first ball and it's a little inside and it's a little bit tight. And I'm like, okay, in training, like I can get away with, I have a pretty good arm and it's pretty quick. And I think I can get it inside this outside blocker. I know I'm one-on-one and I, I swing and I just hear the ball getting blocked. And I'm like, this is not a good sign. I had forgotten in my infinite wisdom that um, Clayton Stanley was the one-on-one blocker and is not a youth sport guy. He's a 6'8", 260 pound, 12 foot touching opposite of like one of the best to ever do it. And he dropped his hands in and I got canned really, really hard. And, and I remember Vincent Pichet just like yelling at me in somewhat French, somewhat English and just going like, what did we learn? And I'm like, I got to swing harder. And Clayton Stanley's just laughing at this hodgepodge group of Canadians playing him. And then the next one I went line on him and, and scored, I think I went like four for five. And then we played Cuba in the semis. We took a set off that American group, which we had no business doing with the group that we had. And then, uh, played the Cubans that were just like fully loaded. And I, at one point they set a 31 and I helped block as the, the position two blocker. And I got Simone on a 30, which is a really cool feeling because he's incredible and, and athletic. And when you get a block like that, it's pretty big. And then I made the mistake. I bit a little too hard on the next 31 that I thought was coming and the setter overloaded me. And so I was scrambling to throw my hands up. So Jared Krause who was playing defense behind me. Didn't get killed by, I forget, I think it was Leal who was just a rocket launcher for an arm. So, and kind of got my hands on it right before it would have just like, <laughs> it would have hurt a lot. So yeah, it was but really cool experience versus those groups. Oh, that's awesome. And then I'm curious, did the, the decision to come home happen because of the coaching opportunity or was that just a nice bonus that as soon as you arrived home, there was a job opportunity that was something you wanted to pursue? Like when you decided to, to not return to volleyball, what kind of contributed to you jumping into coaching so quickly? Yeah, so there was a number of things. Some uh, I had in the works a really, really good contract offer in France that had two Canadians on the team that I had played um, FTC with and, and really liked, and one was at my wedding, and so that'll tell you my how, how much I liked them. Uh, and that offer just kept dropping, and 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 eventually I was I came home, and um, my then girlfriend, now wife, I. I proposing we were going to get married and she had an incredible nursing job at the time that we weren't ready to for her to pack up and come over but the thought process of of being every year for eight months minimum being gone wasn't wasn't a great opportunity there so as that money offer from france kind of disappeared um there was an opportunity um and i'm grateful to ray sarkis at niagara college because he gave with like zero coaching experience, uh, lots of volleyball experience, very little coaching experience that, Hey, like we have this offer. It pays nothing. Do you want it? (laughs) Like, yeah, sounds awesome. Let's do it. Um, and so got an awesome opportunity to jump in and, and be the head coach and make the decisions, um, and, and do all of that. And, um, the path that it's led me on has been incredible, but yeah, the initial, kind of stages of that were, were a whole bunch of things aligned in a way that I was like, all right, you know what, I'm, I'm probably going to stay home and probably be done at this point. And, and wasn't based on my season in Qatar, wasn't physically 
ready or at least I didn't think I was physically in a place to go to national team tryouts, which was a big sign for me of like, okay, are we really going to continue on with this version of it? Nice. And I'm curious what your impression was of the OCAA. And the reason I asked that is another high performer we've had on the show, Garrett May. He mentioned, you know, with his beach thing and playing at Western, he didn't really pay too much attention to the college ranks. And then when he got the George Round gig, he was actually pumped up and excited about how passionate these guys are about volleyball, that maybe they're not playing at the highest level because they're all fired up and they truly love volleyball and they treat it with a lot of passion. So I'm curious when you walked into that Niagara gym, like, did you know uh, about the college level and were you familiar with it? Or were you just excited to work with a bunch of people who just honestly love volleyball and wanted to get better? Yeah, so I had a little bit of insight because one of my younger brothers, Matt, played at both Loyalist and St. Clair College. Um, And so when I was in university, he was kind of in his first year at Loyalist, and we had gone to a couple games to support his team, and and they had a really cool run in the playoffs, knocking off Redeemer when they were one and and some of that stuff. So I had a little bit of an insight into it, um, but really didn't know a lot about it um, because it was in my backyard where I grew up. I had known and been aware of when I was in high school, um, what Niagara college was doing um, some of the athletes that they had had. Um, so I, I did have a little bit of an insight into it, um, but I, I do agree with, with Garrett's assessment. I think that there's a lot of athletes there and especially on the guy side who are just extending their their career in a sport that they love. And I think there is this passion of like, I didn't think I would get to do this. Um, and even that there, there are still those guys to this day, but um, that league has continued to, to grow and evolve in, in a really, really cool way in my time there. And then beyond with, with what coaches are doing. Yeah, definitely. And, and I should preface this with, uh, I coached college for was five or six years, maybe. And I, and I loved it. I look back with a lot of great moments and I think the league is great, but uh, I do think the level is a touch lower than university where I, I think the passion and how fired up some people get and, and some rivalries there, like, uh, were you aware of some of the rivalries or did you kind of inherit that just by going through your seasons with, with the team and, you know, having to play against Mohawk and Humber, like, what were some of those battles like? Because I think the, the West during your era w- was really strong and, and McAllister was there at Sheridan. Like there was a bunch of good teams. I think PJ was around at Fanshawe uh, before you would have left Niagara. So like the, the West kept growing and growing. So I'm curious how you felt you developed as a coach working in this league, because uh, I, again, I'm not trying to like lower the level. I just think it is lower than the new sports for sure, but there's still a lot of good stuff happening. And I think for a coach, there's, there's a lot of benefit you can do with the the shorter turnaround of some of the program length of some of the athletes in the league. Right. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of factors that go in. I, I absolutely loved, I, I was the head coach for Niagara for eight years and, and I owe a ton to that school, to that program, to that league. Um, I do think when you have all, with relative few exceptions, part-time coaches who require other jobs, coaching is a full-time profession, whether you're compensated full-time or not. And so I I think that just all of the stuff that goes into program building for head coaches at the OUA level across the board, and even that's not a historic thing, right? Like it's been over the last number of years that – We've seen an incredible growth in better full-time positions at universities for men's and women's volleyball. Um, I, I think the number one thing for me growing up as a coach in that league, one, I got to be a head coach. 
right? And I think there's very there's not a lot of substitution for being a head coach and making the decisions and living with the results of those, right? As an assistant coach, and I've been an assistant coach in lots of high performance programs for a lot of incredible coaches, and it it's a little bit easier because you're just throwing stuff out there and they're working through that information and processing it. And so I think just being able to do that, to grow it, to be responsible for everything in that program. And I think that's one of the other differences is for, for me at Niagara, it was like, okay, I'm a part-time volleyball coach. I'm a part-time academic advisor to my guys. I'm a part-time sports psychologist. I'm a part-time SNC coach. I'm a part-time, I'm a recruiter. I'm all of these things. And I think it just gave me this incredible knowledge base that I took with me now at York and the ability to work with professionals in those areas um, has been awesome. And, and I owe that depth of knowledge and that ability to, to have those conversations and to know what's going on uh, to my time there. And then, yeah, just to be able to coach against some programs that had some incredible, like we had some incredible battles with Humber when like Terrell was there and um, Andre Brown and, and some just, and I'm missing a whole bunch of guys who played for that group. Um, Pat got Fanshawe rolling pretty quick when we were there. Uh, St. Clair hosted one year, the year that we won, and they loaded up on a whole bunch of guys. They were really good. Mohawk, what Matt Schnarr did with that program for forever um, was incredible. And they won medals and competed for championships for a really long time. And, and he did a great job. So it was, it was a gauntlet running through um, the West and just made everybody get better and, and there are some absolutely incredible coaches that I worked with like I worked with Nathan Jansen when he was the women's coach in Niagara for, for the couple years that he did it uh, Jimmy L. Turk in the league like they're just some really really incredible people and some incredible coaches that you have to be really really good with and you can hone your in-game whether it's tactical adjustments substitution patterns timeouts feedback all of those kind of things and get it in real time with I don't want to say consequences because that sounds a little harsh, but like with real time results of like, okay, that went really well or that didn't go well. Like I probably shouldn't have put the double sub in backwards and we lost 25, nine Humber. So maybe next time we'll try it right. And then we win the next set 25, nine and all is well with the world. So I think that there are some incredible benefits from that league. Um, it, it also just from a player development standpoint, right? I, I think the pros and cons of that are, you got to make kids really, really good, really fast. Um, but you can't fix everything because you usually only have them for two, sometimes three years. And there are some meaningful things that we're like, okay, we, I know we might not be good at that, but we don't have a lot of time to get better at that. Um, and then just manipulating systems with what you have. Uh, I think that was like the year we won a, a, an OCWA championship. Every team in the final four plus another team had a passing opposite in their rotation and had a non-passing left side like it was just how it how it all hashed out <laughs> yeah it, it's awesome to hear about your journey and you mentioned you know now being at york and having access to just more minds and obviously being a full-time job you just have more time to invest in it but uh one thing i've always respected about you and we, we've had some great conversations over the years is just about your process and really being like a lifelong learner and i'm and i'm curious if you could maybe take us through a process of how uh, you find yourself going down these rabbit holes where you just get obsessed and looking for creative solutions and really trying to find the the most benefit to your athletes and i think uh the one you and I have probably talked about the most during the, this pause with COVID, I think, is the arm swing. So if you wouldn't mind just sharing with me and the listeners, like when you get attached to a skill, 
like what makes you want to invest and kind of go all in and really start like just searching the internet, talking to other coaches, like spending your free time, just obsessing over this one skill. Yeah. So I think for me, it comes back to, we keep as volleyball players, like one of the main reasons I made the national team is because of my arm, right? Like I had an international characteristic and that conversation has come up year after year after year with tons of coaches of this guy's arm, this, and this guy's arm, that. And, and I think the more international volleyball you watch, you're like, man, there are like, there are a lot of uh, incredible arms and some of them are, are a little bit different, but there's a theme of like, you got to be able to hit the ball really, really hard at some cool angles in our sport. And so for me, I'm a rabbit hole guy by nature. Like when I latch on something, I'm going to go pretty deep into it, whether it's a passion or, or my job or whatever it is. Um, and I think the, the conversations that I've had with coaches like there has been a little bit of a fixed mindset and i've been guilty of this as much as anyone in the past of like you have that arm or you don't um and then so through a whole bunch of conversations with a whole bunch of different people and a couple really really good resources one is driveline baseball and one is the mvp machine which is how data is influencing player development in the in the major leagues uh, for baseball and just it, it's this ability to develop pitchers and an ability, ability to increase the velocity of pitchers pretty late in their careers. And then how you design everything around what they can and cannot do. And I think for me, that has been an incredible ability of like, you know, using information about the kinetic chain. So how do we get our hips to fire first? And then we get our torso to fire second. And then we can have our elbow extension and then our shoulder rotation. And we're going to create more torque and more rotational power to be able to hit the ball harder. Um, I know listening to a podcast at the start of the pandemic, someone asked Tom Black um, what he was working on. He was like rotational power and torque. And I was like, all right, I think I'm on to something here because Tom's an incredible resource and an incredibly smart human being and great coach. Um, and so for me, it's just continuing out those conversations and, and, trying to find examples of I, I still don't believe that you can take a below average arm swing and make it all world. But what I think you can do is you can slide on the spectrum, right? So we can move average to above average. We can move good to great. We can move great to phenomenal um, and to be able to do it. And so we've done a lot of testing in our gym with it using radar guns and targets and slow motion video and a whole bunch of, really really nerdy volleyball things that just are we actually adding velocity and, and we've seen some pretty cool velocity increases and we have guys who our strength and conditioning staff at york is I, I would put them up against anybody in the country and that coordination has also helped in terms of okay we need our athletes to get stronger we need them to jump higher we need them to hit the ball harder how are we going to do this how are we going to allocate the resources that we have how are we going to use the training economy because for a lot of our guys, when they come to us when they're 17, 18 years old, we don't have unlimited hours with them, even if we could find gym space and work, work weight room space and those kind of things. So um, it's how do we be efficient with it and how do we develop it? And I'm curious if you could share with us how you filter through things, because I, I find myself to be 
pretty influential where, you know, if I, I'm focused on periodization, you know, if Carrie McDonald shoots me his copy or Glenn Hogue shares something, I kind of go, oh, that's really cool. But then you, you always got to tailor it to what your needs are and you're going to have to change stuff. So to go back to the arm swing example, like we're, we're watching videos on YouTube from like Tom House with baseball or Trevor Bowers camp there you mentioned, or even uh, using Isaac Newell as a great volleyball resource and his talk about like the sequence and rotation, things like that. Like, how do you take all that information and really respect these minds that have come up with their own? But, but then when it's in your gym, how do you find like the courage or the creative solution to make sure it's going to work for you? Yeah. Uh, so I've actually had this conversation with a lot of coaches. Uh, I've done a lot of the, we call them mentorship groups, like coaching kind of think tanks. And I, I think one of the big things is understanding what you, the limitations of your lens, because we all have one, right? Like I, I have a finance degree, which gives me one lens. I'm a former professional athlete. It gives me one lens. I've coached in college, that gives me another lens. And we layer them all together and we're able to look at it. And I think it comes back for me, for my principles. And, and my principles, the number one thing I've always run our program with is we want to maximize our human potential, right? And, and I don't know that I would have been able to word it that way a number of years ago, but that's where I've come to with it. And so if we're going to take calculated risks, right, I'm going to do a ton of research to go through all of the stuff. And there are some incredible commonality between every single one of those groups that you just mentioned, right? They, they all have, if you take the principles of what it is, is in rotational sports. So whether you're throwing a baseball, you're throwing a javelin, you're spiking a volleyball, whatever you're doing, there are some core principles. And then how do we modify them for, for what we have? Right. And I think there are some, what are the, for us, what, what are the most efficient things, right? What using the 80, 20 principle, what are the, the big rocks that we need to get in place? Well, most guys need to get some kind of hip rotation, and if they can, if their hips can fire as they're leaving the ground, it's going to be a more efficient transfer, right? That that's not a an opinion. That's like a scientifically biomechanically validated fact. So if I start from there and move our way up, um, and then I'm also not afraid to tinker, and I'm not afraid to go to some of our guys and go, hey, we're going to give this a try for two weeks. We're going to test on both ends, and we're going to know really quickly. And I think that's sometimes what gets lost is the time it takes to to test and retest to know that if what you're doing is actually working and are we headed down the path that we, we want to do. Right. And then I'm really fortunate. The guys in our program right now are so in and want to be great and want to get better at volleyball and want to put in the effort. And we have a ton of time on zoom right now. So we've been doing a lot of it and they've been doing some exercises at home and stuff. So I think just not being, concerned with what it would look like to anyone and more just okay here are my principles and if we're going to get better then like this is going to work right like the principles that trevor bauer just used to sign a deal that pays him more than 40 million dollars a year to pitch are probably going to be good enough for me to to progress towards our ultimate goals of winning provincial and national medals here at york yeah, amazing. I love using Trevor Bauer as an example with our athletes because uh, I think every once in a while as a coach, you're really tempted to show clips of like for, for the beach, like Anders Mole. But let's be honest, that guy's like a unicorn where I'm a big baseball guy. And I think Trevor Bauer is a guy who's 
he's a good athlete, but I think he's worked himself into being a superstar, right? I don't think he has some of the natural abilities as maybe like a Felix Hernandez or some other pitchers, right? Where he's really worked himself into it. And it's just cool to hear that you're kind of adopting that principles of learning. And uh, I'm curious while we've got you, have you ever gone down the rabbit hole and then just had to bail? Like you realized something was going to work for you. Like I, I think there's a lot of coach theory out there, but when I try it in my gym, it doesn't always work. Like giving I don't know, a youth club team full autonomy. I, I agree that autonomy has a lot of power and a ton of value, but you need to give it like structure, right? Then there's there's just some other things that pop up in our sport where something becomes like the new hot topic. But uh, I'm curious if you ever tried something and just said like, I, I, this is really interesting to me, but I got to scrap it because it's not useful. Yeah, all the time. Um, and, and I'm really, really good with it. And I'm okay. And I think part of it is because... Um, there's been a couple times where I like when we won an OCAA championship, we made a midseason change. We had a new setter and we made a midseason change to go from like him trying to just kind of put a hittable ball somewhere to like put it through a window really fast or guys will go catch it. Don't worry about it. And we took the onus completely off a kid who was new to setting, who was an older guy, but was new to setting. Um, and, put the onus completely on our incredibly talented hitters to just go do it. And so I think that with enough thought, some good things will happen. Um, but I, I do agree with you. I, I think it's really easy to find the end product, right? And I think that it's really easy and using the autonomy one of like, yeah, we'll, we'll give our group full autonomy. Well, if I haven't done my job as a coach, setting on our vision, setting on our standards, setting out what it's going to look like, how we're going to get there, that plan, giving them full autonomy within it is probably going to end up with 14 people going in 14 different directions that might kind of go in the same spot. So I think sometimes it's when I try something, I always want, I, I'm super prepared in how we're doing it. And I'm not a coach who will just take, oh, Ben said this, we should do this. Okay, cool. That work. But why is he doing it? What does he have? Right? Like some of the stuff that Ben does does not apply to me. My middle blockers right now don't touch 12 2 like Jackson Howe. <laughs> and I don't have Eric Lepke. And neither does he now because Eric's doing really cool stuff in Italy. But I think just finding the context of why is he doing it and what is it accomplishing? Right. And I think when you look at systems, when you look at all those kind of stuff for our sport, what are we trying to do? You're trying to create space for your hitters. And you're trying to get your best attacker the best opportunities the most often. Okay, so what do we have to do with our group to be able to do this? What does that look like? And then as you're going down that, and for me, this is what I always, and I always tell my staff this, and, and I, I love my staff because they'll be the first to tell me, I'm like, have we taught this well enough? Right, like have we done our job, they've learned it, and we just can't do it? Or have we just done a really terrible job of, of teaching it because we tried one method, Joe, the right side, it didn't work for him. He didn't really understand it. We didn't bother to try a different approach to it. Um, so I think if we've checked those boxes, like, like we've taught it a couple different ways, they fully understand it. They're really trying hard at it. They're, they're going down that. And all of a sudden you're like, you know what? Like this isn't more efficient. This isn't better. This isn't whatever. And then, trying to find a way to quantify it a little bit, right? Even if it's just by eyesight off video after of like, okay, Josh, like when we ran the slide instead of the 61, the 61, you were, you know, you were like four for 10, but the slide, you were seven for 10. And the two that you missed were great shots that we'll, we're going to get. Okay, cool. We're going to keep going down 
that version. Whereas if we flipped it, we're probably not going to, to go down the other version. Um, yeah. And as I'm about to ask this question, I'm already thinking like it, it, you're probably going to hit me with the generic. It depends. So I'm going to take that off the table right now, but I'm curious if you could share how you identify these gaps in performance or what you want to work on. Like what, what needs to happen first for it to catch your attention for you to put in all this effort and try to find a creative solution? Like, is it, is it data driven? Is it performance driven? Is is it everything? Like what makes you like what sparked your interest in the arm swing or what sparked your interest in, I don't know, a middle running a slide in men's volleyball? Like what are some little things that really get your wheels spinning that, that you need to find a solution for? Like what draws your attention to that first? Yeah. So for me, because I recruit 17 year olds, as does every other youth sport, like men's volleyball coach across the country. Um, there's some flaws fundamentally to what they can and cannot do. And there's some standards we know that they need to hit for us to be successful at various levels. Um, and so for me, I'm always trying to profile out um, what does that player look like for us when we put this all together, right? And so for me and, and my staff and players will attest to this and Preston will too, like I'm a volleyball junkie like i i am a volleyball nerd and i will talk volleyball all day every day in any capacity i know tons of international players i watch a ton of volleyball i have a lot of patterns in my head that i can put like hmm, that outside hitter really really looks like that polish outside hitter who's right-handed from zaxa okay cool i can then go to volumetrics pull it up what does he do what shots work for him and then I can work through with our guy to be able to do that. Um, and then sometimes it's just problems that arise that we've tried in different ways. Like for us, uh, a couple of times at the college, we had some unique pieces or we lacked one fundamental piece. Um, I'll give him full credit. I think Dustin Reed at Ryerson on the one side is incredible at taking what he has and making gold out of all of it. Um, and I think that little bit of, uh, I got to work with, Dustin when I was a player and, and as a coach, so I've seen both sides of that. Um, and I think for me, it's just really looking at like, what, what's an efficient way to get this. We know we got to get kills. We know we got to be decent at blocking. We got to be able to do these things. How do we look at this? And then trying to put some kind of data to it. Cause I think sometimes when you go to players and this is for sure evident when I have coached with the national team, it's less with the provincial team. I find the provincial team guys are really open and as long as you explain a little bit of what you're doing, why you want them to try it, they're pretty good. When you go to the national team level, and especially my summer with the B team and, and when I've done it, those guys are trying to get contracts for their livelihood, right? Like they're trying to get their next big deal. They're not really looking for some of them to make fundamental changes. And I don't mean that in terms of like fundamental skills. I just mean like they're not looking to, they're looking to go, yeah, you know what? Like I've played in, Italy and Poland and Russia, like, yeah, I'm not making that change. Right. So I think there, those, the conversations are really important in how you do it. Um, but I think overall, just having an idea of what you want to accomplish and what are the different ways you can accomplish it. And if you've tried some of those, what's a creative solution to it, right? Is it running too fast to one side, but not to the other? Is it running a slide, which we've done, a decent amount in, in for men's volleyball. Um, how do we run our pipe? How do we do all those kind of things? And just looking at different versions of it because 
there are a lot of leagues that aren't like I think we get caught up with what what does Italy look like? Well, Italy looks like a lot of freak show volleyball players to me who do incredible things. Like I don't know how much carryover what Wilfredo Leon can do has to some of the guys that I coach. Um, but there's a lot of carryover to some really, really young, skilled 20-year-old Polish kids starting in their Plus League. Like I think that has some tremendous carryover in trying to find those models for them and then just trying to, to look at something different. Because if I'm going to line up against a team, whoever it is, and play the same way that they do, I better have better players, right? And I think that when you look at in the OUA, for example, there are oftentimes you have a week to prepare for two opponents. Well, if one of those opponents is something really, really unique, that's a really hard thing to prepare for, right? Like, and and do you have someone in your gym who can do it, right? Like, the thing that is really hard to prepare for for us, we play U of T twice every year, and Jordan Figuera has an incredible rocket spinster that he can hybrid into like drops in the circle and he's left-handed and it comes from five. I don't know a lot of programs that have that guy in their gym who can go do that and you can train for that. Right. It's really, really hard to train for, or all of a sudden looking at like your regular cue reading or your regular sequencing doesn't work because they're doing it different. Right. And I think some of those are competitive advantages if you're good enough at it. Um, and some just aren't right. There's, there's usually good reason or oftentimes I'll say good reason to why some stuff just isn't done. But if the answer is because we've never done it or it doesn't work, let's make sure it doesn't work before we throw it out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It reminds me when I'm, I'm still down this rabbit hole, but just looking into decision-making and, and the Buffalo bills quarterback uh, was on Pat McAfee's show. And he was talking about, you know, the guy in the fourth row knows that the defense was playing cover two there. That's not the trick of identifying cover two. The trick is what is in our system to counter that and what can we play with it? Like, you just can't notice it's cover two and all of a sudden we have a play. Like, you have to have something built into your system. And I think that's where, as you mentioned, the OUA schedule, that's where, like, the art of coaching comes in that we can identify this. But, like, what do we have that's going to counter it? And I think that's part of the fun. But uh, before we let you get out of here, I just have one more question to kind of put you on the spot here. What would you encourage club teams to do or what would you do as a club coach where, you know, you talk about how long it could take to learn this skill or this system or this tactic? Like as a university coach, are you drawn to always be watching the top tier or is there still room for that second division coach who's going to spend, I don't know, 16 weeks on trying to get his team to run a BIC and it's not going to pay off by the start of the year, but maybe by provincials, it's going to pay off. Like, is there room in the system for somebody who's going to be patient and take some lumps or, or because you're so limited with your time and the recruiting window is pretty small that like the attention does go to the top tier here in Ontario. That's a really good question. Um, I, I think there's always going to be time for kids who check enough boxes and i think the the unique part about the oua is coaches and what they're looking for have a different list there's some commonalities in it right like for the most part taller is better whip your arm is better all of those kind of things but i think for me one of the biggest things and it's at our level too and i say this a lot because i work with club coaches a lot i have the utmost adoration for what club coaches do i don't have to deal with parents i don't have to 
have a full-time job and get my kids to school and home and all of that other stuff and then start to think about volleyball maybe kind of sort of right and I think that for me it's how can we make our athletes incredibly good at the fundamental skills and especially the ones and prioritizing the ones that they need to be really good at so let's be globally skilled but be really really good at the things that are going to make a difference so if you're an undersized left side you better be a phenomenal passer you better be a great defender and you better be a really efficient attacker okay cool let's start with that you can be great at setting you can be a really good server yeah we'll work on that but the let's make sure we're really good at the things that are going to profile out for you to be successful um and take that and then i think sometimes it's overlooked of play in a system as a club coach it doesn't matter to be honest with you what that system really is as long as you have some pieces where the most balls get hit and the diggable balls get hit. But at some point, play in a system. Play in something where I know what Josh Nickel is blocking and I'm defending. Awesome. We're, we're going to be pretty good. That ability to transfer. And then what are we looking at? And I think that that sometimes gets overlooked. I think Kerry McDonald at the Volleyball Canada level has done some incredible work in pulling different studies and um ones that have been working with eye tracking devices and some of that, what do the best players in the world look at? Or at least like, how do we get our athletes to start looking at the right stuff so they can find their cue, right? Like we're working a lot with our guys right now, especially like our pastors, for instance, that what are the things for a server? What are you picking up the fastest? So it's not about me telling you to look at their elbow or their shoulder or their hand or their whatever, it's me telling you that there's going to be some information somewhere in the box around their shoulder, head, and hand. Somewhere in that information or cherry is a cue for you that you're going to find. If you, if it's too late in the sequence, it's not going to help. So then we'll help you change it. But you got to find one you can pick up really quickly that's going to give you the information. So I think doing all of that and then adding in some of this stuff and, and letting them play around in training with a third step deck or a you know, a third step left side ball, the right side ball, or a different variation of a C ball and, and encouraging through whether it's prompted scoring or some of that stuff, encourage some of the creativity, encourage some of the stuff of like watch some volleyball on YouTube. Like, I don't know that I would have survived my first degree if YouTube was around with the volume of volleyball that it has. Like <laughs> I found enough volleyball on VHS tapes in Dave's office and BitTorrent downloads, which I'm aging myself. I know, but where I could download the world cup and I could do those kind of things. I spent enough time like, and I still do, but I, I think there's so much tremendous access to our sport and continue to watch it at all kinds of different levels um, and different genders, right? What is NCAA women's volleyball look like? Why does it look like that? What is NCAA men's OUA, OCAA, Canada West, whatever you can get your hands on. Like what's the, my boss always jokes of Nate, like what's going on in like the sixth division of Turkey. I'm like, I, I haven't got there yet, but give me a couple of weeks and, and I might. So I think all of those things to just like, yeah, encourage some, some creativity, encourage some stuff they're going to need to do at the next level, be a little bit patient with it. And at some point, like the club teams that are end up winning probably have the most loaded talent, right? Like back in my day, we didn't move clubs until really late in my career. I moved from Niagara Rapids to the Mountain Athletic Club at the time um, to play with a group. Um, before that, like we didn't move, right? Like back in the day, I didn't go to Bronte Beach, for instance. I, I stayed at Niagara and we worked really hard to try and beat Bronte Beach. 
right? We didn't just go jump onto that team and, and figure it out. So I think there's a lot of stuff that has changed. Um, and there's a lot of like, what are you doing for me now? And as coaches, can we have a plan for our athletes? Right. And if our guys know you have a plan, um, or, or your girls know that you have a plan and there's thought out and how it's going to benefit you, then I think you have a tremendous mind and a great experience, which is what club is about. This is awesome, man. I, I feel like we need to get you back on the show very shortly because I feel like I'm, I'm tiptoeing into a rabbit hole, but I know uh, you're a good family man and we, we both got some other stuff to accomplish tonight. But uh, one, one more question before we let you get out of here is you've obviously demonstrated that you've played our sport at the highest level, you're coaching at the highest level, but man, something odd or funny must have happened along the way. So I was hoping you could just share a, a funny volleyball story before we let you go. Uh, there are so many. Our sport is is so awesome and and it's funny, I sent one of our guys, there was a blooper reel that someone put up on Instagram the other day of world-class players doing absolutely ridiculous stuff. But I think going back to that that 2009 North Sika tournament, and we're, we're playing the Americans, and uh, after I get, I get stuff blocked by Clayton Stanley, I have my interaction with Vince, and we just start to play really, really well. And on the other side of the court are like Olympic gold medalists. And one of them is Riley Salmon. And anyone, Riley Salmon is one of the greasiest hitters. He is an absolute incredible maestro with the ball. He also has no problem engaging in dialogue. <laughs> um, and I also, for anyone who ever played against me or coached against me, I didn't have a really tough time engaging in dialogue either. And I remember during that match, just continuing to talk to him and talk with him through the net and having this conversation. And at one point I was, he, he said something that I won't repeat on the podcast, but I just looked at him and I'm like, yeah, man, but you won a gold medal. Like, you're like my hero. And he blatantly just looks at me and goes, we have no, you know what idea who you guys are and how you're beating us right now. This is embarrassing. And then kind of like walked off. And I was just like that. Now we've made it like we're a ragtag group of Canadian FTC guys who have somehow rattled a bunch of Olympians in, in Puerto Rico. So yeah, it was a pretty funny exchange with that guy. Welcome to the show. I think the only way you could have big timed you more is to ask you to turn around so he could read your name on your jersey or something uh, like that. Yeah. How do you pronounce that again? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well nate this has been awesome I, i've definitely learned a lot and it was great to you know recap your career but also just talk about how you're really living this model that like frank st denis and other coaches talk about just being like a lifelong learner and always reflecting and finding new and cool stuff to do so like i said we'll definitely have to get you back on the show but for now best of luck with everything you got going on with the york lions and i, I know you're keeping those guys engaged with some cool zoom calls and hopefully we're back in the gym in no time but for now, thanks for all that you did, and we'll hopefully talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Josh. Love the podcast. Love what you're doing for our sport. Thank you.